Okie dokie doodly. <laughs> you just, okay, you are full of surprises. Why well, would I you just say was trying, doodly? I was just trying to avoid saying, well, hello. Well, now you haven't, have you? So well done. <laughs> Operation a complete success. My other way that I sometimes greet people is, hi-de-ho, neighbour. Yeah, I have heard you do that. Yeah. Um, that's a Ned it, Flanders thing, I guess. I think yeah? it is a Ned Flanders thing. No, it yeah. just totally is. Oh, is it? Like, okay. I've been yeah. doing it so long, I forget what the source of it is. Yeah. No, well, so. quoting The Simpsons, that is pretty original. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> makes me seem sort of cool and edgy, don't you think? Mm. <laughs> About that. <laughs> do you also say groovy sometimes? <laughs> Groovy baby, yeah. God That's God. from Austin Powers. I, know, I like saying I know that it is. too. Everyone knows it is. <laughs> How you doing? I am okay. Yeah. Wow, the universe is a busy place at the moment, isn't it? Oh my goodness, it certainly is a busy place. Do you know one of the things that I find actually, amidst all the kind of horror and difficult things going on, one of the things I find massively amazing and cheering is how much kind of power is being generated by young women oh yeah and particularly young women who I'm thinking of all the um women signing that Chanel Contos petition Mm. like who have done this amazing thing that I think a lot of women in our generation and older just couldn't quite get the hang of and that is that they're kind of saying well this thing happened to me but I'm not going to spend decades you know feeling shameful and and grief and about it because the shame doesn't belong to me. It belongs yeah. to the person who did this to me. That's like such a powerful realisation to come to and I'm just so pleased that they seem to be getting there as a generation. It's yeah. amazing. And also I think something that's changed is I think in our generation there was still a bit of an attitude of um, children should be seen and not heard. And sure. so, yeah. um, you know, young women in particular, I think mm. under, you know, the age of 20 or even under the age of 30 or even just women in general, yeah. um, were not, you know, y- your voice wasn't considered particularly worth listening to. And I think that's changed. And yep. particularly in recent months, I think, between Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, yeah. who've both been so incredibly articulate, um, they've almost, you know, between them, driven this moment that we're experiencing um, currently. And it's just, it's really impressive. I was talking to a uh, friend on the weekend who, who's a teenage uh, girl who does some babysitting for me. And she said something that I thought was so insightful. Yeah. We're, we're talking, her dad had had to do this training in this thing called radical candor. And which oh, I. God. Yeah. I've got hives already. I was so fascinated. <laughs> I went immediately home and Googled it. And it's basically, it's a corporate, I didn't realize it, but it's a book that's been on the New York Times bestseller list, oh. which is about teaching people how to um, deliver sort of negative or unpleasant Mm. messages but in a way that's also still caring so Mm. it's sort of training if you're in management how do you tell somebody something you know unpalatable at work but in a way that they don't feel completely crushed by right anyway so it's obviously something people find really hard to do anyway so when my friend was explaining this I said um wow that's actually that would be a useful skill for people to have generally in life the ability to do that and I said and in the context of what all of those young women have been um talking about in terms of the school petition thing oh, yeah mm-hmm. wouldn't it be great for people to have training in how to deliver a message um, of like a really clear message how to, how to clearly say no mm. or I don't want to do this or I'm not comfortable or whatever and my my friend the young woman said um, do you know what I think would be really good if people received training in how to receive no because the reason often that you're scared yeah. to say no is because you're scared of what the reaction will be and yeah. you're scared that the person will um, lash out at you be violent um, abuse you whatever so if people better understood how to receive no huh 
Oh, don't you think that is so insightful? It is. Stopped me in my tracks. God, um, how, long, yeah. how many hours have we wasted between the two of us talking about, you know, how to, how say, to no. say no? Yes, it's how to receive no is the thing. God. So that people, when you're told no, you don't get snippy, you don't get offended, you just go, okay, thank you. Or, wow. Yeah. This is a really good idea. Yeah. I thought this it is was... where we get 100 letters from people saying, there is that book already and, and you just haven't read it. <laughs> yeah, it's probably, on the New York Times right. bestsellers. But this but... is why it's worth listening to 15 and 16-year-olds because yeah. I didn't think that up myself. It took, yeah. took a younger person to explain wow. that to me. Oh, good on her. Yeah. Very impressive. Now I just want to go and read all up about this, but we've got other things to <laughs> you know, It's just like, I don't know. It, it is a bit of a moment, isn't it, where this sort of new surge of power has evolved, largely kind of generated by people who without power, which is mm. very, very interesting and doesn't happen a lot. And one of the interesting things happening now is just everybody who is an established sort of established powerful person sort of trying to accommodate yeah. this, this changed you know, environment. What's so interesting too is I think because we've gotten so used to from political leaders and also from corporate leaders at times, um, often actually, um, sort of weasel words and, you know, trying to sort of blame shift and, oh, yeah. yes, we had no idea this was happening and we're so sorry yeah. and, you know, all of those kind of things. When you have uh, people that come through and speak really crystal clearly, like I'm thinking of Grace Tame mm. in her National Press mm-hmm. Club address, it really pushes through because we're so used to this ocean of just BS the entire time. When right. somebody says something that's really authentic and crystal clear, it really yeah. resonates. Oh, okay. And also there is a sort of liberation to powerlessness you know um so if you don't have any conventional power and like Brittany Higgins for instance you know is a junior was a junior press secretary you know not really even registering on the power scale at Parliament House or if you're Grace Tame a schoolgirl to which this dreadful thing had happened um you don't have any power which means that's a challenge but it also means you've got nothing to lose you know you can um, you can say things and speak with a clarity that often people enmeshed in power structures don't feel that they can do. And um, that is a great liberation. And it also means that you can make a virtue out of the disadvantages that some people enmeshed in power structures have, i.e. that they have to cloak everything they say with, um, you know... Um, or just that they fear losing power. Right, yeah. Um, I watched this doco um, during the week I think it came out in 2019 or something. It's not new. It's just on Netflix and it's called Knock Down the House. I think a few people have seen it. I hadn't actually even heard of it. Um, But it's a doco about um, the election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Oh, yeah. And so it focuses on a number of kind of grassroots women candidates across different US states going for um, through the primaries to be um, congressional candidates. And... It follows um, Ocasio-Cortez around pretty closely and what becomes really obvious about her situation is, you know, she's she's running against a really powerful, established Democratic um, congressman who represents the Bronx, mm-hmm. um, but he doesn't live there, you know, and... He's kind of got the – he's been there for years and years. He's got the entire neighbourhood wrapped up. He's a powerful Democrat. And her grassroots campaign against him is, hey, you know, why don't we elect an actual normal American who comes from a marginalised com- community to do the talking for that community rather than you who haven't lived here and, you know, you're enmeshed in the Democrats' power structure but you're not really 
you don't really know about our lives. And she employs the same thing, powerlessness, as a sort of a weapon. She says, you know, you're so tied up with your own obligations to powerful structures that you're a part of that you've forgotten how to speak for the powerless. It's really, it's such an interesting film. I mean, there's some other really um, fascinating women candidates too um, n- who weren't um, successful. There's a woman called Paula Jean Swearingen who's running for um, Congress in West Virginia and she her daughter died because she didn't have health insurance and she had a respiratory illness as lots and lots of people around there. It's like a um, full-on mining, very poor community. Lots of people have respiratory illnesses and cancers and all sorts of stuff. So huge issues packed into her campaign. And it was just the whole film is a really fascinating observation of people who have no power beyond their collective experience with people who like them, who also vote, who are like them, who also vote. It's interesting to wonder. I mean, you see it happen occasionally in Australia, but it's never reached a mass where it's made a sort of wholesale difference. Um, it, like, I do sometimes well, wonder. I'm not sure that that's right. No, no, I don't mean. Oh. Sorry, I was about to explain what I was sorry. talking about. Um, <laughs> I'll just crab explain you. Um, the I was wondering whether. Like we've seen seats where independents have taken um, power, like say yep. Zali Stegall in yep. Tony Abbott's seat. We've seen occasions where through complete luck independents have held a balance of power. But what I meant when I said we've never seen it sort of make a wholesale difference mm. is we've never had that many independents elected mm. to parliament that um, they've been able to usurp the authority of the major parties. And so we still have a two-party system. Mm. I do wonder if we'll ever reach a point where you'd have enough independence there that it would change the nature of the political system from a two-party system. Well, minor parties are nearly a third of the Senate now. I mean, Mm. even after the sort of weeding out attempts, there's heaps of independence. And, you know, the closest thing to what you're talking about, I think, is when um, a particular grouping that sticks together has the balance of power in the Senate because that completely changes the behaviour of a government that has to deal with this grouping. I always remember when that um, sort of sizeable contingent of One Nation senators arrived a few years back um, in Canberra and, like, the government had to sort of staging welcome cocktail parties for them and, like, well, what, what, what do One Nation people eat? You know, <laughs> cheesels, you know. <laughs> um, but so they kind of behave, the governments behave differently around them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there isn't a kind of, there hasn't been a full groundswell of, you know, yeah. lower house activity, for instance. People, but, poli- I mean, I guess this has always been true to a degree, but politicians over the past decade have talked to me about how important your um, local sort of profile is and your sort of personal mm. um, branding, I guess, in a seat as opposed to just the party branding. And yeah. you do notice that at times, of yeah. course, when parties are on the nose where yeah, popular local candidates <laughs> stop using any of the party branding on their material. Yeah, it's like a total campaign round for journalists going around measuring the size of the party symbol on <laughs> yeah. the core flutes or of the, the colour that's being used. I know, you know, exactly. I've gone for purple this year. No reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that has been really interesting of late is just this sort of like rage, you know, this rage among women and it's kind of I find a lot of women find it difficult to articulate why they're so angry at the moment and I I think it's a multi-directional thing you know just this 
sign of the system being cloth-eared and not kind of recognising their experiences, like the big turnouts at those rallies, which despite the rage were like the most polite events ever. Like <laughs> I went to the one in Sydney with my daughter and, you know, I was mainly observing, but... Um, <laughs> There was so much, um, excuse me, could you, oh, there's a patch of shade over here if you'd like to stand in it. Can you see properly? Because you could stand in front of me. I'm a bit taller. Like it was the most polite rally that I've ever um, ever seen. But um, this sort of multi-directional rage is a really fascinating thing. And I'm reading this book right now, which is, it's quite a, like, it's quite a controversial book, I think. It's by Deborah Oswald. She's an um, Australian screenwriter um, and it's called The Family Doctor. And it's about... I think I'm giving too much of the plot away because she's the author's talked about it a bit. Um, it's about um, a group of friends, three women, and one of them is in a violent relationship and is murdered by her husband and her children are murdered too. So the two surviving friends are, as you can imagine, absolutely devastated. One of them is a court reporter and the other one is a family doctor. And they deal with their rage about what happened to their friend in different ways, but Essentially, the family doctor character cannot help but see her friend everywhere. All of a sudden, she sees all of her patients that are in violent relationships and she thinks, how can I help? And then one day, she's put in a position where she has some control over, you know, the health status and situation of one of these violent men and she offs him. And so like, it's incredibly taboo, this idea that your rage would actually, as a doctor, translate into killing somebody who is a monster, right? And she's not unchallenged. I mean, there is um, <laughs> the people to whom she confides are highly horrified at what she's doing. Like, It's not like the book is sort of defending this, but it's interesting to see that sort of thing even included in a plot like because it it does feel like an incredibly taboo thing and it made me think I imagine there'll be people that are outraged by the book because it's so confronting but then I think well the old Fifty Shades of Grey which is a global bestseller which is really basically saying you know what sometimes women love to be hurt it sort of is a bit less controversial in some ways. Yeah, I mean, it, it's such a fascinating time at the moment because yep. I think we're looking as a society at all sorts of things mm. um, and, you know, stuff that sort of, I guess, has seemed kind of normal. I, I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I'm just looking at things and going, oh, is that actually normal? <laughs> well, I, I saw your remarks that you made the other day at that press club thing um, where you were talking about your... Like really hard-schooled practices about journalism, which is you don't report on on somebody's private life unless it's directly, um, you know, connected to something in their public life. But well, you say what you said because I thought it was really interesting. Oh, I, I, um, I, I was actually going to say sorry, nothing related to that. I was going to say um, that I like things like, for example, um, yesterday the prime minister said um, about women carrying their keys in mm. the hand when they go to the car at night. And it just, it made me stop and think. Um, I just thought, I've been doing that since I got my learners in 1989. Mm. I've been carrying around my key. Every time I've walked to my car alone at night mm. since 1989, I've had the thought, I hope I don't get raped. Like that is just. <laughs> do you think you, do you think you'd do a good job with the keys if someone did come up no. to you? Yeah, I know. I, don't, I often think that I'm like. No, it's, it's a, it's a, I guess it's just a 
yeah. fantasy security blanket. Well, there was that amazing. And it's also, do you know what? It's also because I don't want to stand at my car rifling around in my handbag looking for my sure. keys. Yeah, right? because you so. don't want to be vulnerable for a, for a second longer that you want to, than you need to be. Also, you don't want to just be annoyed. But I've never really thought, I've never thought very much about, um, like I just in the past week have thought how often the thought crosses my mind, I hope I'm not going to get raped. And it's yeah. often. <laughs> Like it's quite, it's disturbing. And it's, I think, you know, for most women that it is a thought that runs through your mind if you find yourself yep, in a, you totally. know, alone somewhere where you feel a bit vulnerable. Mm. Um, and then I guess I've just been used to it because I've thought it my entire life. And then just, it, it seems weird that I only thought of it recently, but I just thought, yeah, that's just, that's really bad. That's a fascinating um it's not really experiment, I suppose, but um, I can't remember which which school it was at. I think a US college or something where um, I read about it where a lecturer um, who had a class of, I don't know, postgrad students or whatever, just as an exercise, because it was roughly half male, half female crowd, said, I want you to take a piece of paper and write down everything that you do that you can think of to keep yourself safe from physical harm. And... So what happened is that all the women in the class are like, oh, yeah, I got this. So they're like, you know, can I have another piece of paper? Because they're doing, you know, <laughs> the keys in the hands. Oh, I live by myself, but I leave lights on. I, I stay on the phone when I'm walking home. Text just in my case friend when I get home. I, say blah, blah. I, yeah. I text my friend the number of the taxi I've just got into. You know, I say I've got home safe. I put a pair of men's work boots outside the door of my apartment <laughs> so that it looks like a big guy lives there and blah, 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 blah. Running out of paper. And the guys are kind of like, um, well... What, what do you mean? Like, oh, well, I suppose, I don't know, I lock my door or, you know, <laughs> just like. And then the kind of sense of disparity of experience was really evident from the amounts of answers that people came up with. And I think I remember reading that a lot of the men in the class were just kind of like, wow, you know. And it's so odd because it's something that is so completely obvious to women yeah it's so ingrained in your yeah. behavior isn't it that you're always sort of fearful for your personal safety mm. and trying to mitigate against it um what you were talking about that I said was about um just in journalism the era that I came up in journalism you are um you know as you did mm. thoroughly schooled that people in public lives public life their private lives are not relevant unless mm -hmm. something is occurring in their private life that yep. is, has direct bearing to their the execution of their public duties. So they're using their travel allowance, for example, to fly their mistress around or, you know, whether it's they're doing favours for someone they're sleeping with, um, using their portfolio, then it's then it becomes in the public interest. But if it's just a straight, you know, moral issue, then that's not in the public interest. And so that that's a very um, thoroughly sort of held and, and schooled, drilled into you yep. from when you start in journalism. And so that's how I've always reported. Um, and I'm very uncomfortable with stories that don't adhere yep. to that. Yep. Um, rule. So, but then in, of recent times, I've sort of thought about it and it's prompted a little bit from, and I know we've talked on the podcast about Monica Lewinsky, it's mm. prompted, been prompted a bit by that too, which is about power and who whose power does that sort of rule mm. in journalism support? And what it really has done, if you look at, say, even just the evidence over, over the time I've been a journalist, is it is a system that pretty much allows powerful men to get away with behaving however they like, mm. and it is the less powerful women who often have suffered the consequences of that. Yep. Um, and so it's caused me to think, wow, have I been, you know, 
brainwashed into a system that basically entrenches the power of the mm. powerful people who are mostly men. Now, mm. if, if the rule, if it was 50-50 power balance in, you know, boardrooms and um, politics and whatever, then, you know, maybe that rule would be a bit more even. Mm. But it's currently not. And so it's causing me to just think about that I'm still extremely uncomfortable about just reporting on people's private lives yeah. I think it's a massively slippery slope and I don't intend to change the way that I do it but I am giving it extremely deep mm. thought well I think one of the issues is if you start with the basic assumption that people are allowed to be in consensual relationships and that people meet each other at work and you know there is nothing wrong with that is is a sort of reasonable assumption it also works for men and women because, you know, there are heaps of women that have consensual relationships at work. Um, where it becomes problematic is if there is another layer in there, which is um, men who's, who's typically um, more powerful status gives them a particular type of access to a particular type of woman um, for consensual relationships, then you've got another complicating factor. Because I think one of the issues that has really emerged around Parliament is that people have consensual relationships and then when they go bad or they, you know, are over, it's the woman that gets kind of like shifted out of there is suddenly a liability, whereas the bloke just kind of Well, it's the classic Clinton-Lewinsky thing, isn't it? Where right. she was yeah. really fascinating, some of the stuff she said about this, where mm. it was in her mind for years and years, she completely rejected the narrative that she'd been taken mm. advantage of, even though, you know, she yeah. had everything to lose. Because as yeah. you say, like he has all the power and she has no status and no power. And so her life was just destroyed and his was sort of fine and then she's said in recent times she's gone back into counseling to reassess the way she's viewed it because she accepts that even though it was completely consensual and she wanted to be there and she felt that they did care about each other that it is indisputable that there was a power imbalance and that she was too young to mm. be completely aware of what she was stepping into mm. in that situation mm. so she she's written I think extremely thoughtfully about all yeah. of that stuff yeah. Um, I, I was reading the other day, I've sort of turned out to be reading a series of things that were kind of relevant to um, all of this. I do recommend to you a um, little book called Power and Consent by Rachel Doyle. She's a barrister oh, yeah. in Melbourne and she, before all this started happened, uh, happening, although I think partially in reflection of the on the Dyson Hayden situation, she's written this very useful little book about... Um, women in the law and how these politics work inside um, the legal um, community yeah. um, and a bit about the legal issues involved. It's um, it's a pretty quick read. It's a, a little um, series of essays of which this is one, but it's, okay. it's terrific. Um, well, interestingly enough, <laughs> I also have read recently a book called Tipping by Anna George, which is it's a novel and it is about the politics in a school where sort of gender politics come up. Oh, yeah. And um, so it's a kind of like a schoolgate fiction, very readable, um, mm. quite funny. Is it um, a bit Leanne Moriarty? Or? Yeah, I was okay. actually avoiding mentioning that because I didn't want to like <laughs> pigeonhole either of them, but it is a bit like that. But it also, it also canvases all these issues about domestic workload as well and you know oh, that's yeah. something that I'm super interested in. So it, it um, you know... It, was an interesting read. The main character is a woman called Liv. She's got three sons. They're at this um, 
a private school that she and her husband sort of struggle to afford the fees for and there is a sort of a, you know, internet shaming of girls scandal that goes on that involves her kids and so it's about her struggling with those issues with the parent community and then it's also about her constant negotiation with her husband who's lovely but away a lot and she does every single thing around the house as well as working so she basically blows her top. It's quite um, oh, okay. it's that quite therapeutic. Good. Is it Australian mm. or? Yeah. Oh, okay, great. Mm. All right, yeah. that sounds good. I like the sound of that. Hey, I finished Jacqueline Maley's book, The Truth About yes. Her, which I think I just started. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Um, I partly enjoyed it because it was largely set around Glebe where I used to live yeah. so um, I did really enjoy that. But there um, any fairy wrens? in it I can't remember no, um, I did there's a without giving anything away in the plot there's a bit where um, she agrees to undertake a project at which point it really held my I was like oh yeah. this this is gonna be interesting and so uh, yeah it was it, but it really kept me uh, engaged I really enjoyed it it was great yeah it's an excellent book yeah, yeah. it's really good um, radio. Uh, there's one more thing, one more um, quite amazing book I'm, I'm still halfway through and it was given, Julia Baird gave it to me actually and she she just said, oh my God, you got, this is a real treat. And oh. I'd never heard of it. It's by a woman called Lucia Berlin and it's called A Manual for Cleaning Women. Uh-huh. So it was, she died in 2005, this woman, and the book kind of became famous in 2015. So posthumously. Yeah, I love that. And the the stories are decades old. It's like a um, short story collection. But I just, the writing is so powerful and observant. And if you're kind of like a Raymond Carver fan, which I absolutely am, it's sort of like him but better. And it is set. Oh, God. Is she American? Yeah, and she worked as a cleaning woman for a long time because she never, ever made an income from writing, as far as I can gather. And so it's set among the cleaners and the people who work at diners and people that she's met at laundromats. And it's just observing characters and also weirdly sort of observing power structures and how people without power behave towards each other and towards people with power over them. It is, and but the writing is just luminous. I've, I mean, it's absolutely brilliant, and I just absolutely fills me with such fascination to think of this life spent producing these absolute. I've used the word absolute about a hundred <laughs> times. Sorry, I really apologise. Please don't write in. Um, these pearls that never really were appreciated while she was alive, but now I think are gathering this life. Um, after her death. That sounds great. I've texted yeah. it to myself because it yeah. sounds like a real yeah, treat. Yeah, it's really good. Um, now, let's wrap this up, but I think we should plant the seed that in our next podcast we will have an exciting announcement to it's make. It's true. So, there is actual news instead of just whispering yes. on. And, in fact, it's it's so we're so committed to this news that we're going to share that it is the next podcast, which is, this is very unusual for us, we can tell you that it is going to arrive on Tuesday the 13th of April at 8 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Gosh, all right. Yes. So tune in. Okay, although now we've just pre-announced the tease that we're going to put, like this is going to go up on Monday. Yeah, but that's fine. You can never have too much sizzle. But then the tease that we do will just be a repeat of what we just said. Yeah, that's fine because there's tons of sizzle. 
Okay. It's just sizzle, sizzle, sizzle. Oh God. Sizzle, well, we, baby. Well, let's edit out this, you know, post <laughs> ex post facto discussion of oh, the sizzle. Well, keep it on about sizzle. People love to know about how we think about sizzle. <laughs> <Do they? laughs> You're so deluded. All right. <laughs>